0: Let's stand together for the reading of Scripture. It's from Acts chapter 7. It's a very long section, and if we read the whole thing and didn't leave anything out, there wouldn't be any room left for Joey to speak. And he's got a wonderful message to bring to us today that addresses the passage that we're about to read. I'm just going to read parts of it, and he'll walk us through the larger narrative in the message. Hear then the word of the Lord. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. As the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right. You know, I love that our kids are heading down for the second hour catechism and all that, but it's always disconcerting for a speaker when they get up and like 100 people immediately leave, you know? Uh, Hopefully it's not because of what we're studying. I mean, we've been in the book of Acts for I don't know how many weeks so far, covered the first uh, six chapters of it. So let me recap for us a little bit. Where are we in this story so far? We've been working our way through it. This is Luke's history of the early church. Remember, it's a history that he wrote up for the sake of a Greek Gentile convert to Christianity who wanted to know that the the faith he had come to was rooted in real events in history and was reasonable and reliable and believable, right? Now, we're only seven chapters into the story, but we've already seen how the Jesus movement, how Christianity is rooted in the Jewish expectations for how God would rescue the nation of Israel, Actually, the story is bigger than just Israel, uh, and we're we're right on the cusp of watching the early Jesus followers kind of figuring that out. See, it's the events that uh, Pastor Jeff led us through last week, what we're going to look at today, and then again next week, it's these events that push the early church out of Jerusalem and out into the rest of the known world. So let's take a look at Acts chapter seven. My wife and I have been married long enough, 18 years now, uh, that we have figured out all the little shortcuts and quicker ways to kind of get across a point that we're trying to get to the other person, you know, without needing to take like whole paragraphs to explain what you're trying to say. So for instance, if my wife wants to point out to me that my behavior in a particular situation is you know, not the greatest. Uh, Maybe I'm like trying to control the situation or I'm just making unilateral decisions on on behalf of the family or more likely than not, I'm kind of pontificating so others will be impressed at the learning and erudition that I bring to a particular situation. She just cuts right to the chase by just saying, you sound a lot like your dad. (laughs) It's like, oh, right? Now, my dad's a great guy. Uh, But he's got his quirks and his deficiencies, we all do. Uh, But saying, you know, you're kind of acting like your father is is sort of a a shortcut way of saying that there may be some patterns of behavior that are evident in my dad's life that are being echoed or repeated in my life. Sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's not. Uh, so when my wife says, oh, you sound a little like your dad, uh, that's just kind of a way of saying, be careful, right? Be careful. Y- y- you might be acting just like your father. Now, I got to tell you, first hour thought that was hilarious, maybe because they've all, like, they, they've been married long enough that they've got this the, this shortcut language figured out. Or maybe it's because, as one person told me, they've been married long enough that they know that you're just like is off limits. And you never say it if you want to say happily married. So, moral of the story is, I think we should never say you're just like. But it's, it's, it's that kind of... Uh, Statement. Be careful. You may be acting just like your father. That's the, the dynamic that's happening in this long and, and complicated passage that we're gonna skim through this morning. See, so we're at this turning point in the narrative where the action is speeding up, false accusations are flying and one of the great leaders of the early church is on trial and we're wondering what will happen next and it's right at this moment that we want Luke to rush forward and tell us what happens, keep the action moving that he slows us way down and gives us the longest recorded speech in his story of the early church. And it's a speech that ultimately boils down to one main charge or accusation or idea. Be careful. You might be acting just like your father. Be careful. So let's get into the speech. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, Now, you noticed, as Pastor Tom said, we didn't read the entire 53 verses as the scripture reading before the sermon this morning because we tried it, and it's longer than we're normally comfortable standing and listening. In fact, yesterday, while I was doing some other chores, uh, I listened to chapter seven on repeat, and every time I listened to it, by the time I got to the end, I'd forgotten what the beginning had said. It's a long reading. Also remember, like, we have these, you know, books, journals, whatever. But Luke's writing on a scroll. Scrolls aren't cheap. There's no such thing as infinite scroll at this point. It scrolls. Thank you for the two nerds that got that one. Um, really appreciate it. And the technology has limits to it. it. It can only be so long. So if Luke is going to give this much speech to or this much space to one speech, you know it's in there for a really good reason. Or maybe more than one really good reason. I think there are at least two, and actually by the time we get to the end, I'll uh, uh, see if maybe there's another third reason why this is included. Uh, the first, of course, is just it moves the narrative along. If you remember the passage that Pastor Jeff led us through last week, we saw how Stephen was falsely accused of blasphemy against Moses, against God. Uh, they said he was teaching that the temple was past its point of usefulness, that Jesus had superseded the law, that all the rituals and customs of Israel needed to change now that the Messiah uh, was here. But Luke, in in the way he tells this story, it's fascinating. He tells the story and hits all the same story beats, like the, the same kind of things happened to Stephen that happened to Jesus. Stephen is accused of blasphemy. The religious leaders stir up the crowd. They instigate and solicit false testimony against him. They bring up the issue of, you're saying Jesus said he'd destroy the temple. Even after the speech, when he's being stoned, sorry, spoiler alert, when he's being stoned, Stephen acts just like Jesus. He lifts his eyes towards heaven. He gives up his spirit. He prays that their sin would not be held against them. Most of those details, actually, Luke doesn't include when he tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew and Mark do, but Luke doesn't. He, he kind of saves those details for Stephen's trial and execution, Showing us, I think, that that Stephen's not really the one on trial here. Jesus is. This is Jesus' last big trial in Jerusalem before the Jewish leaders, before he is ultimately and finally rejected by the leaders of Israel. I think that's the first reason that Luke includes this whole big, long speech. The second reason, though, is that that Luke also has to explain for his readers why the Jewish leadership rejected and ostracized the Jesus movement when Jesus was clearly the true Messiah that Israel had been waiting for. I mean, think of the evidence. Jesus was killed and resurrected. He appeared all over for weeks. Jesus' followers were able to perform miraculous healings and signs and wonders in his name. His followers would rather take a beating than pretend that they didn't see what they said they saw. So you can imagine a Gentile, a Greek person, reading the story so far and asking, but if, if Jesus is the Messiah for Israel, then why is Israel not Like, accepting him. Why are they rejecting him? With all of that evidence, why would the leaders reject Jesus as Messiah? Well, that's one of the questions that Stephen's speech has to answer. Turns out, they're a lot like their fathers. So, Let's jump into, into the speech. Now, going through the speech, of course, point by point would take us quite a few weeks, and it's not really fair to take one speech, making one point, and then like break it up into three or four sermons. Uh, so instead, we're going to skim our way through it, highlight a few of the important points that Stephen makes, which means I can't comment on everything. So if there's a, a verse or a part of the passage that you're like, why is that in there? What does that mean? Text the, the question to the, the number that's up there on the screen, and we'll cover it. We'll try to make sure we address it in Cut for Time, that's the podcast we record midweek about the sermon and you know, all the stuff that we didn't have time to say. And with 53 verses, there's a lot of stuff I don't have time to say. So I'm gonna stop talking about how I don't have time to say things and just you know, say things. So let's look at verse one. Now, you see the question that the high priest asks Stephen. That question, are these things so, is giving us a hint about what to expect in the speech to come. They're setting up an expectation for the question Stephen's going to address, and so then the fact that he doesn't address that question at all is important for us to notice. So the high priest says, are these things so? And of course, these things refers back to the accusations, the false accusations made against Stephen. But his rebuttal, his response doesn't actually respond to those accusations. Uh, Instead, he kind of takes a step back from them and tells a story that pushes back on the assumptions behind the accusations. There are things that the religious leaders are assuming are true that he actually needs to push on a little bit if they're going to understand the proclamation of the Messiah, of Jesus. See, in the minds of the leaders In the minds of the religious authorities, the law and the temple are ultimate realities, absolute and eternal. Everything in Israel's story leads up to the giving of the law and the building of the temple, which means then everything that comes after the giving of the law and the building of the temple is patterned off of those things. If the Messiah comes or when the Messiah comes, then he will be subservient to, subordinate to the law and to the temple. But in this speech, Stephen argues that the law, the temple, they're not absolute realities, they're relative realities. They have value, yes, but they have value because they're pointing towards something else, something bigger, something better. In other words, the the religious leaders are conditioned to think that when the Messiah comes, he will point to the law and the temple, and Stephen's arguing, no, the law and the temple are pointing to the Messiah. That's a different way of looking at it that kind of flips it upside down, and if you can't see it that way, you're not going to understand how Jesus really is the Messiah. So as we jump into the speech, we notice Stephen doesn't defend himself, he doesn't answer the accusations against him. Instead, he turns the accusations back on the leaders themselves and confronts their bad theology of the law, their bad theology of the temple. And then he follows it up with this full frontal attack. Be careful. You might be acting just like your fathers. All right. So the speech itself, it's not a formal argument, He doesn't say point one, point two, point three. It's actually a narrative, a retelling of Israel's history in a way that makes some specific claims about how God works, how God has worked. Actually, it's a chain of smaller stories, four smaller stories that he then applies to the council, these guys that are questioning him right in front of him. It's four shorter stories. It's Abraham, and then Joseph, and then Moses, and then the story of the temple itself. Uh, The most space is given to Moses, so we're going to speed through Abraham and Joseph until we get there and then see how Stephen applies it. But the first vignette, the first kind of short story he tells, is verses 2 through 8, and it's about Abraham. And the point in telling this story, the point that Stephen's getting across is, well, he starts out by reminding these people who are listening to him, reminding them that God's presence, God's glory, is not confined to the temple. God's presence and God's glory aren't restricted to just the temple. And so if God's presence isn't restricted to the temple, then proper worship of God is not restricted to just the temple either. We see it there in verse 2. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared, or the God of glory, appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, when he was still in a pagan land before he was you know, here in the promised land where the temple is, God's glory, God can manifest his presence anywhere, even in a pagan land. And in the verses that follow then, Stephen repeats the promise God made to Abraham. Your descendants are going to be held in captivity for 400 years. And after that, you are going to come back to this place to the promised land, and once you are here, you will worship God. You'll worship him in Israel. See, worship always follows God's saving acts. God is going to act to save his people, and then you are going to respond in worship. So the worship of God in the temple and the custom of circumcision, which he brings up in verse 8, These are celebrations of how God has worked in saving Israel, the responses to what God has already done. So if God then works in a new way, a new covenant in Jesus, in the Messiah, then the kind of question hanging in the background here is, well, then wouldn't new customs and new celebrations be appropriate? Now, that's the Abraham vignette. He moves on from there uh, into verse 9 into the Joseph, the short story recounting Joseph. He jumps right over, you know, chapters and chapters of Israel's history to, to speed past Isaac and Jacob and get up, uh, up to speed with Joseph. So the story of Joseph, as he says in, in verse 9, is the story of a son of Israel rejected by all of his brothers. I right, see Joseph, who ultimately is going to be the one who delivers Israel from starvation, is initially rejected by those who know him best. I think that's just a coincidence? Is it coincidental that Joseph was rejected by the people he would ultimately end up saving? Or maybe it's a little odd or ironic that the one who would save Israel was actually recognized and accepted first by a Gentile, by, by Pharaoh, before he was accepted by his own brothers. Right, but again, that's exactly Stephen's point as he's telling the story of Israel and layering these different incidences on top of one another. Well, he jumps again ahead another 400 years in verse 17 to the story of Moses, uh, which takes up the bulk of the speech. Of course, at this point in their history, the people of Israel are under oppression. They're faced with the threat of extinction, They're worried that God might not fulfill his promises. I mean, So what better time to send a savior? And at just the right time, Moses is born. Now, here's a guy... Stephen tells the story intentionally so that we get this point. Here's a guy who has absolutely nothing wrong with him. No inadequacies in him, his character, anything. Verse 20 says he was beautiful in God's sight. Appealing enough that when Pharaoh's daughter sees him exposed to the elements, she rescues him, adopts him, and raises him as her own son. Just like Jesus there's nothing wrong with this guy. There's no inadequacies. There's nothing in him that would cause people to reject him. And that's important. Because verse 23, and verse 23, and well, everything that goes on from it in that paragraph, tells us that uh, Moses' first act of, of rescue. Salvation is the word that Stephen uses. Moses' first act of salvation isn't understood or appreciated by his fellow Israelites. One of the guys he rescues even asks, Well, who made you ruler and judge over us? You know how that question's supposed to be answered. No one, not even God. And so the Moses story is the story of Israel's rescuer being rejected. And he seems to be lost, exiled into the wilderness. But in spite of that rejection, God appears to Moses in in the burning bush, and then he appoints Moses to the work of delivering his people. It doesn't matter that the people have rejected Moses as their deliverer, as their savior. They're not the ones who get to decide who saves them, that's God's decision. It doesn't matter if the people reject the Savior. That person is still the Savior, still the deliverer, if that's what God has appointed them to do. And then, well, look ahead at verse 33 because something really curious happens here. In verse 33, this is, you know, God has appeared to Moses. He's appointing him, commissioning him, sending him to deliver his people, save his people. And as a result of God's presence in appointing a savior, he says, hey, take off your sandals. This place is holy ground. See, holy ground isn't defined by, you know, a row or a square of bricks that kind of mark out a temple. Holy ground, a holy place is defined as wherever God is present, saving his people. That's The holy place, that's where God should be worshiped. So again, the question kind of hovering in the background as Stephen tells this story is, well, what if God isn't working in his temple anymore? What if now he's working in his Messiah? Or what if he's now working in his Messiah's people in the church? Well, then where's holy ground It's a good question. Now, Stephen goes on to argue that, in fact, they actually should have anticipated this, expected that God might work in this way, in a new way, in a new Moses, because Moses himself said, God's gonna bring another prophet just like me. And a couple chapters earlier in Acts, we read where Peter's preaching, and he's saying, hey, you know what Moses said? Moses said, God's gonna bring another prophet just like me. Who do you think that was? He tries to point them towards Jesus. So again, there's a question hovering in the background. When that prophet shows up, isn't it curious that you leaders rejected him just like Moses was rejected? And another point in, in verses 38, 39. Moses was in the wilderness with the people of Israel when the angel of God gave him the law, what Stephen calls the living oracles, gave him the law in order to give that law to the people, and it's right there when Moses is acting as prophet and lawgiver and, and as savior or deliverer. It's right there in that moment that they, Stephen says, our fathers refused to obey him. God gave Moses through an angel, gave him the law, he gave the law to you, and you're like, yeah, we're, we're not going to follow that. In fact, in our hearts, he says, that they got to the point where they're like, slavery in Egypt would be better than following this guy. I don't care if he's the one God chose, I'd rather be a slave in Egypt than be rescued by God through Moses. Interesting, isn't it? Even saying that when people reject God's salvation, they end up turning to idols and worshiping something other than God. You remember the story of the golden calf. Look what we can do with our hands. Look what we can make. Be careful, he's implying. As he's telling the story to people who know the story very, very well. Be careful. You might be acting just like your father's. Now, to back it up, uh, he quotes the prophet Amos. This is in verses 42, 43. Because Amos argues that it was the idolatrous worship of God's people during the 40 years wandering in the wilderness that God ultimately, is before that reason, that God ultimately gave Israel over to exile in Babylon and everything that came with it, including the destruction of the temple. There's a clear connecting line here. Rejecting the savior, the deliverer, the rescuer that God provides leads to idolatry. And idolatry leads to the destruction of the temple. And that bridges us into the fourth vignette, the fourth story in this string of stories as he tells the history of Israel. It's the story of the temple itself. To Stephen, in verse 44, he refers back to the tent of witness in the wilderness. That's the, the tabernacle, uh, the sort of portable temple that would go with the people that moved with them during their wilderness wanderings. And then the tabernacle actually moves into the promised land with the people. And Stephen says, you know, it was good enough for our fathers uh, from the time of, uh, of Joseph all the way to, or jo- Joshua all the way through to King David. Yeah, David and his son Solomon, they wanted to build a house, a temple for God, a permanent dwelling place. And that was good, but remember, we have to remember, God can't be contained in a building. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah in verses 49 and 50 to, to make this point. God may choose to work in a building like, that, like a temple. But don't be fooled into thinking that God is only in the temple, that he's restricted to the temple or contained by the temple. See, temple's good when it's a place of blessing, a place where people can come to praise God for the salvation that he's given through his divinely appointed mediator, like Moses, like Jesus. But the leaders of Israel don't think of the temple that way. They think of it as a house for God to rest in, a house they built with their own hands. In other words, they think that they're giving to God what God needs, which is idolatry. It's not that they don't think God's presence can't be found in the temple. It's that they think God's presence is only found in the temple, that it's confined to and restricted to the temple. And because they've built God a house, contained him within the temple, they're performing all the right rituals, then they think they can manipulate God by their performance. Almost like, like some sort of magic. Just do the right thing, put the right thing in, get, the, get what you want out. That's... Idolatry. The temple is great. As long as people there are praising God for the salvation he has provided in his Messiah, in Jesus. But if they're not, then the temple necessarily becomes a place of idolatry. Where God's saving work in the world is being ignored. And those Four stories bring us up to verses 51 and 53, where Stephen applies the story of Israel to the men who are questioning him. Now, if you read all the way through this, it might kind of jar you, the quick shift into verse 51. It's like there's a whole lot more story still to tell about Israel, but he's told the parts of the story that he needs to tell in order to make his point. As he refers to them, he immediately turns now, he's not associating himself with them anymore. None of this our fathers or our ancestors at this point. He looks at them and says, you stiff-necked people, unwilling to think out and think through and see what you were supposed to see all along. You stiff-necked people, you are uncircumcised in heart. That's a common Old Testament saying for someone who's outside of the covenant relationship with God. But more than that, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You don't even have the ability to hear When the Messiah is proclaimed to you. As your fathers did, so do you. At this point, he's not even saying, be careful. He's just saying, you are acting just like your fathers. He's bringing home his main point. Just as throughout Israel's history, the rulers and the leaders and the elders of Israel have missed God's salvation and rejected his prophets, well, These guys, these leaders today are resisting the Holy Spirit, persecuting the prophets, the people who proclaim that God's saving work has come in the Messiah. Even worse, he he says, just like how your fathers killed the prophets who announced that the righteous one is coming, now that the righteous one has come, you guys went even further and killed him. So who should really be on trial for circumventing the law and denigrating the temple? not Stephen, the way he tells the story of Israel and then turns it there at the end and applies it to them, he's telling them very clearly, you have rejected the salvation that God offers in the Messiah. You've turned the temple into a place of idolatry. You've nullified your obedience to the law by rejecting the Savior. You're acting just like your father's. And they understand exactly what Stephen's saying. Like they're picking up what he's putting down. Verse 54 tells us, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And then the verses to come say, and then they dragged him outside of the city and lynched him. They stoned him. So what do you think? Successful speech? What would the speech teacher give it? Didn't answer the question, got himself killed. That's, a, that's at least a passing grade, right? Because it's the longest speech in, in the whole book. Well, <laughs> I think Stephen gets his point across, but maybe he doesn't get his point across to them. It's more about getting his point across to us. Because we've got to ask ourselves, like how in the world does this story, this telling of the Old Testament story of Israel, how does it apply to us? I mean, it's tough, I think, for us to conceive how it might apply, it's very clear if we were Jewish leaders wrestling with the claims that the Messiah of Israel had come, we'd be like, oh, I think I understand what I'm supposed to do with this. But most of us are at the point where we've come to faith in Jesus as Israel's Messiah and as the true Lord of the world. So what does this story have to say to us? Well, I don't think Luke includes it just for its historical value just in order to show why the religious leaders of Israel rejected their own Messiah or because he needs some story to kind of bridge from, hey, the whole church was in Jerusalem and now they're scattered everywhere. How did that happen? This story is written also for us, for the church, so that we get the point. I think Luke, maybe the third reason he includes this whole long speech is so that followers of Jesus, you and me and and all of us, we have to recognize that the people of God, the people who are trying their best to follow and obey and love and serve and worship God, the people of God will always face the temptation to hear God's word in such a way that conveniently matches everything I already think and believe. God's people will always face the temptation to think that their obedience, their perfect belief, their perfect worship, can manipulate God into giving us what we want. I mean, we could just do a survey of church history in the last 2,000 years and see every generation, church leaders had to deal with the temptation to read God's word conveniently, where it doesn't really challenge. In fact, it upholds everything I already believe, everything my culture says is valuable. Every generation of leaders has to face again the, the fact that it's so easy to believe that my obedience gets me something out of God that I want more than I actually want God himself. It's all too easy for us to act just like our fathers. So where are we, you know, where are we reading God's words in ways that uh, conveniently let us do what we already want to do? Is it when we insist that truth matters more than Character, so in defending Jesus, we act nothing like him? Is it when we take articles of faith that the whole church has believed for 2,000 years, and because it's socially awkward or socially unacceptable to believe those things today, we just say, well, that can't be what God really meant? Is it when we read scripture and we find nothing challenging there because all the challenge has been explained away? Well, that's what it meant back then. And where are we trying to manipulate God into giving us what we want? Is it when we bargain with him and we say, oh, God, if, if you will only do this, then I will do that? Or is it when we think that more prayer, more worship, more tithing, more more serving, more time in the church will, will obligate God then to, to make good things happen for me. There's something I want God to do for me, and maybe all he's asking is that I pray more, serve more, worship more, love more, and then he'll give me what I want. Or maybe it's when disaster strikes and bad things happen and we would never say it out loud, but internally we believe that that should not have happened to me because I'm one of those good Christians. Good enough that God should have protected me. Man, it's all too easy for us to fall into acting just like our fathers. But then again, acting like those who've gone before us isn't all bad. It just depends on what story is being highlighted. I think Stephen would have wanted to say in his speech, our father Abraham was faithful and you're acting just like our father. That's a good story. Instead, he had to preach, your father's killed the prophets and you're acting just like your father's. That's not a good story. My hope is that someday when my daughter hears you're acting just like your father, that it'll it'll weigh just a little more towards the, I think that's a compliment side. Not because of anything great in me, but just because, like all of you, I'm just trying to act like Jesus, who acted just like his father. So let's pray. Lord God, we call you Father, uh, not just because that's the way that you have revealed yourself to us, but because if you are our Father, we are your children, then we should reflect you. We should look like you. The things that you love, the ways that you act and behave, the, behave the grace and, and the mercy that you show, we should find echoes of that behavior in us as well. But Father, we admit that none of us perfectly reflect you. The only one who ever has is your son and when you sent him as a reflection of you, we killed him and murdered the righteous one. So Father, forgive us for the ways that we have failed to live up to our sonship, our daughtership, our adoption as your children. And I pray that through the sacrifice of your son and our contemplation of the gift of your grace to us in Jesus, that we would become more and more like him And so more and more like you, and may it be said of us one day that we are just like our Father in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.